Please take your Bible and turn with me to the book of John, the fourth chapter. And rather than read the entire passage, what I'm going to do in the interest of time this morning is to walk you through the passage of Scripture. But I do have some introductory remarks to get us online as far as what this message is about. In the book of Proverbs, there are many statements about what constitutes a true friend. If you want to know what a true friend is, then it would be to your advantage to read the book of Proverbs. Let me mention three things which the book of Proverbs says about friendship. In Proverbs 18.24, the Bible says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And actually, the word which is translated friend there in Proverbs 18.24 is the word lover. So it speaks of a friend who really cares about you beyond just the normal concept of friendship. It is true, isn't it? If you've lived long enough, you know this to be true. That if you just have a bunch of companions, there will come a time when those numbers of people begin to make it impossible for you to be a true friend to any one of those people. There's just so much resourcing we have to go around in terms of ministering and caring for other people. Now, let me stop here and note what the writer of Proverbs says, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Who do you think that might be? Well, I would say it's Jesus Christ. Jesus is the friend who will stick with you more than anybody else will ever stick with you. For instance, Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves, but I have called you friend. And stop there just a moment. The word have called means that once Jesus calls you his friend, he doesn't defriend you. He's not on Facebook. I'm sorry. He's not going to defriend you. That's pretty cool, isn't it? He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Another statement that we find about friendship in the book of Proverbs says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Jesus loves us at all times. Once he calls us his friend, and we become his friend, once that has occurred, then he loves us at all times. Perhaps the best example of this is found in John chapter 13, when the writer of the gospel talks about how Jesus, having loved his men, he loved them to the end. And that would suggest to the end of his physical life. Now recall, those men about whom it is said he loved them to the end, without exception, abandoned Jesus in Jesus' direst moment. They left him. But Jesus loved them to the end. That's amazing, isn't it? That's the kind of friend we need in this life. And then the last thing I will pay reference to is in Proverbs. And it's found in the 27th chapter in the 6th verse. And the scripture says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Profuse simply means many are the kisses of an enemy. That would be a warning for us. If we have someone who's just... Wanting to kiss, 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 kiss. I'm not talking about on the mouth here. I'm talking about on the cheek or whatever. Kiss up to you. Excuse my French. If you have somebody who wants to do that to you, beware. That person probably isn't a friend. 
But if you have someone who really loves you as a friend, that person will love you enough to confront you when you need to be confronted about anything in your life that's a hindrance to your spiritual growth. Now, did Jesus ever do that? In Revelation chapter 3, verse 9, this is what the Bible says. These are the words of Jesus to the church at Laodicea. He says to that church, and He would be saying to us, church, this, He would be saying this to us, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. What does the word rebuke mean? Someone who wounds us because of His faithfulness, To us as a friend, because he knows if that does not go address, whatever that may be, the result is that we will suffer greatly. In this passage that we're looking at today, Jesus cares enough to confront a very unlikely person in his culture. He confronts, first of all, a woman. And men were to have nothing to do with women except in the context of family primarily, and especially someone you had never met before. And this woman is a Samaritan woman. That may mean nothing to you, but hopefully it will become something of significance to you as we work our way through these verses. Now to the text of Scripture, the Word of God. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3 serve as backdrop to this story. So let's read them. There are applications which we can gather from these three verses to our lives. When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. What's important In terms of Jesus' example to us, and remember, he's left us an example that we might do to others as he has done to us. And we see he's about the business of making disciples and baptizing them. And that's the proper sequence. This group of men who went to Kenya, Mombasa, Kenya, on the Indian Ocean, they went there to teach pastors the finer points of disciple-making, not simply discipleship, but disciple-making. And Jesus is a maker of disciples. And we make disciples, and then the end game is that people come to the point of recognizing their need for Jesus and to publicly identify with Christ through believer's baptism. The disciple-making process is incomplete until people whom the Lord uses you and me to introduce to Him come full circle and are baptized as believers in Christ. And then the scripture says he left Judea. Judea is the southern region of Palestine. It's where Jerusalem was. That's where Jesus had been ministering. And he departed again into Galilee. What this tells us about Jesus is Jesus is no respecter of places. If he had been about wanting to find himself in the place that would give him the most press and the most access to people who are people of significance, he would not have gone to Galilee. Jerusalem was the hot spot within Judaism. But he goes to Galilee. Galilee was in the north, and Galilee was viewed as being backwoodsy as far as the southerners were concerned. Sort of reversal of things as they would be in the United States. 
And the Galileans were really hillbillies of sort. And so Jesus goes to the least likely place to minister. He is no respecter of people. He is no respecter of places. What's interesting, and I know you've noticed this if you read your Gospels, you'll notice that many times Jesus will deliberately choose to go in out-of-the-way places. And the way in which Mark concludes the first chapter of Mark is very instructive. One simple sentence. It speaks of how Jesus has gone out into a remote area, and the Scripture says people were coming to Him from everywhere. Wherever Jesus Christ is, people are magnetized to Him because of who He is. With that as introduction... Now let us look in detail at the way in which Jesus cares enough to confront us. He cares enough, first of all, to confront us with His love. We see this beginning with verse 4. He had had to pass through Samaria. So the first thing we see is that Jesus was compelled to go to Samaria. Samaria was the northern part of Israel. In the middle of the 8th century, what happened was that Assyria had come down from the north, Assyria being the most powerful nation in the world at that time, in that region at least. They had come down and they had attacked the capital of Samaria, which bore the same name. It was given by one of the first kings of the northern kingdom, a man named Omri. It's found in 1 Kings 16.24, he named it Samaria. And therefore, the whole region around came to be known as Samaria. When Assyria came and destroyed Samaria... They took the cream of the crop of those who were left alive and deported them, exiled them into Assyria. They left behind some people who were descendants of Abraham. They were Jewish people. But then they saw to it that many of their own people were imported into that area and intermarried. And the result was that there were no full-blooded Jews left before long among the northern people of Israel. And this created a big bone of contention between the Jews who felt themselves superior to these half-breeds and these political rebels. Another part of the story that I did not take to go into time to go into detail, and I won't take much time here. You may remember after Solomon died, he was succeeded on the throne by his upstart son named Rehoboam. And Rehoboam did not take the advice of the elders in the nation of Israel. Rather, he took the advice of his peer group, bad advice, and the result was a civil war broke out. Rebels were part of that northern group that separated to form their own nation. So there was this bad blood between these people. And it had been simmering for almost eight centuries by the time we read this story. We'll look more at some of the things that characterize that relationship. But Jesus was compelled to go through Samaria. There were other routes one could take. If you were an observant Jew, you would not even want to walk where Samaritans walk. And there were two routes. One was by the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, on the west. The other was on the east. And you would go parallel across, and then you would hit 
Perea, the region of Perea. After you cross the Jordan River, you would go up and then come back across once you are out of Samaritan territory. Jesus didn't take either of those routes. And Jesus was an observant Jew, by the way. And we're going to see in this passage that Jesus' men had no reluctance to go into a Samaritan village to get food for themselves and for Jesus. Jesus had been teaching these men early on in his relationship with them that he had come into the world to save not just descendants of Abraham, but even Samaritans themselves. So they would not be contaminated, that being his disciples, as they went in to gather food for Jesus and them to eat. Why was Jesus compelled? Well, here's what I believe is accurate in answer to the question. You may remember, and if you want to glance up the page in chapter 3, where the scripture says, For he whom God has sent, speaking of Jesus, speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You may recall that an equally legitimate translation of this sentence, it's rather complex in its grammar in the original language, would read like this in the last part. He has been given, speaking of Jesus, the Spirit without measure, without limitation. So, Jesus is one who has the Spirit without measure. And this is what this leads us to conclude. Jesus was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go into Samaria. Now, we have no way of knowing whether Jesus knew he would meet this woman. But what we do know is that Jesus was certain that God would guide him by the Spirit and he would have opportunity to share the gospel with people. Not knowing who it would be, probably. And so he goes there. He was compelled. Now, what does this have to do with us? It has everything to do with us if we know Christ. And here is what it has to do with us. If Christ lives in us, he lives in us by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God compels us to minister to people at different times. I think about what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I am under compulsion to preach the gospel. Where did that compulsion originate? Paul was a hard charger. We know that before he became a follower of Jesus. But it was all about him then. But once he came to Christ, it was all about Jesus and the Spirit of God. So, you and I, if you ever have an urge to do something that's out of the ordinary for you and go somewhere, not really knowing who it is that you will be taken to, that you might share Christ with, maybe you would know who that person might be. But understand, this is the work of the Spirit of God in your life. Jesus confronted this woman with his love when he was tired, but didn't center on himself. Look again at the text in verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. This is near the modern day town of Nablus, which is in what is known as the Palestinian part, the West Bank of Israel today, still there. 
This is where Jesus found himself. And he goes on to say in verse 6, Therefore, Jesus being wearied, that means just worn out from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. I don't know about you, but sometimes I get tired of people. I'm out of the closet, okay? I get tired of people. I remember hearing a great preacher by the name of Charles Allen. He preached at St. Mark's Methodist Church probably 35 or more years ago when I heard him preach. And I wanted to hear him because of his reputation. I went down and listened to him preach. And as he was preaching, I'm not sure what he was talking about. It was not this topic for sure, but it had some relevance, as you will see. He was telling us about how he, at the time, was the pastor of the First Methodist Church of Alabama. At the time that he came here, he was the pastor of the First Methodist Church. Did I say Alabama? I did, didn't I? Atlanta, excuse me. But Houston is where he was pastoring the First Methodist Church. And he said, you know, when I was in Atlanta, we had a full-time housekeeper in our home, and this woman was very astute with people and she would take calls or people would come to the house knocking on the door to talk to me or people called and wanted to talk to me. I gave her good instruction. When I was really tired, I named every room in our house with the name of a big city in the United States. And I would tell her, I'm going to Dallas today. And so... If someone calls, just say, he's in Dallas, and I'll be in Dallas. (laughs) I've been tempted to try that, but I haven't yet, okay? (laughs) But what we know is Jesus is human, and he gets tired. But he did not let the limitation of fatigue keep him from loving this woman. And if we were to go to Mark, the second chapter, there's a great story told about after an incredibly busy couple of days of ministry that Jesus has found his way home. And the scripture says that he's, in a sense, enjoying being at home. And all of a sudden, he's ganged by people. People found out he was there, and it was like a mob scene almost. And Jesus doesn't send them away. He sees it as an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Now, if you get tired of people, and you probably have a reason to be because you're with people all the time. There's nothing wrong. In the Mark, the sixth chapter later, Jesus tells his apostles, you need to withdraw and rest a while. They had been so involved in people's lives, they were not able to eat or rest. He said, Go get some rest. There's nothing wrong with rest. God created a day simply for rest, the Sabbath. But when you are surrounded by people, never dismiss an unexpected opportunity to minister to somebody in that situation. Because it may be that the Lord will use you as you Say no to your own fatigue and ask Him to do what He is expert at. He does what we read in the book of 2 Corinthians 12. His power is made perfect in our weakness, not in our strength. Well, 
Here's another way that Jesus confronts this woman with his love. He refused to let social custom or prejudice stand in the way of loving this woman. And he does it today as well. And we, if we follow his example, we're going to implement these principles in our lives as we find ourselves in situations. The Bible says in chapter 6 of John 4, the last sentence, it was about the sixth hour. That would be noon. And the region where Jesus ministered, as you well know, is much like El Paso. Some of you have been to the Holy Land. It looks just like El Paso almost. Very arid, very hot. And the sixth hour, noon, something happens. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. We know she came to Jacob's well. What we also know, according to recent archaeological discoveries, is that from Sychar, where she lived, to Jacob's well, between those two, there was another well that she could have gone to. And by the way, we can go to the Old Testament, Genesis 24:11, and the story is told of Rebekah, who was watering her camels, and there were lots of women there, and she watered the camels at the time of day when women would go to water the camels. That would be in the evening. This woman's coming at noon. Does that seem odd to you? She's going at the hottest, hardest part of the day, and she comes at this time. She's in isolation. That's important to tuck away. She's alone. And she's gone out of her way to go as far away as she can, probably, to get water that would be reasonable, and then go back to where she dwelled. And there she is. And remember, she's a woman. Men would have nothing to do, I've already mentioned this, in a public setting with a woman who was someone he or she did not know in a familial relationship or in another kind of close relationship. Also, she was a Samaritan, so there were two strikes against him having any kind of association. There was great prejudice, as we have seen. Let me mention one line of a prayer that was prayed regularly in Jesus' day by Jewish men. And it goes like this. Don't remember Samaritans in the resurrection. The resurrection meaning the time when the Messiah would come and there would be redemption. Don't remember Samaritans. In other words, Samaritans be damned is really what they were praying. And so that was the kind of animosity the run-of-the-mill Jewish person had towards Samaritans. And it was reciprocal. It was not one way. So I'm not just talking about the attitude of the Jewish people. But Jesus doesn't let social custom or prejudice stand in the way of ministering to her. In fact, he says to her, give me a drink. The grammar, if we looked at it in its original language, would give us the idea of Jesus' courtesy, the way he addresses her. Really, he was saying, and she would have understood this way, please give me a drink. Imagine this. The God-man asking this woman, whom you know more about than we have learned so far this morning perhaps, for a drink of water. He's polite to her. Look, he's on a mission, isn't he? Why did Jesus come into the world? To seek and to save that which is lost. And he doesn't cut to the chase like we are apt to do and says, Hey woman, you're a sinner and you're going to hell if you don't listen to what I have to say. It's not the way he does it. Now, sinners, if they don't know Christ have to face God. 
And if they don't trust God, their ultimate destiny is separation from God forever. Well, he's going to get to that in a little bit. But he is very thoughtful of this woman and tactful in his approach. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman therefore said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a Samaritan woman? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. An alternate reading of that last line in verse 9 would be, The Jews do not eat from the dishes of Samaritans. Because it would contaminate them. They would be ceremonially unclean. And she's puzzled by this. Some have said that maybe she's being a little snide and rude in the way in which she's speaking to him. You're a Jew. And she probably said that maybe with a little snarl when she said that. But we don't know that. Maybe she's just puzzled. So Christ confronts this woman with his love. And that's what God calls us to do. We need to be understanding what the Bible says. That from God's vantage point, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. We don't have slaves per se anymore. Some people occupy a lower position in the socioeconomic strata. And we need to be aware of that. Nor is there any male nor female in Christ. In other words, Jesus treats everybody the same. That should be our approach as well. But not only does Jesus confront us with His love... But he confronts us with the truth, too. Now, remember where we started today? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Jesus is the best friend you and I will ever have. He will confront us in our sin because he knows that the wages of sin is death. And if something is not done about our sin, then the result is not a good outcome. It's eternal death. He confronts us with the truth about ourselves. Let's look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him and He would have given you living water. This is to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John, what John 3.16 is to the third chapter. And let me take a little more time with this verse. It's so important. If you knew the gift of God, raises a very important question. What was Jesus talking about when he was speaking of the gift of God? Well, I would think, without doing any serious investigation, when I thought of it, at first when I was preparing the message, I was thinking, well, this is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul writes. But when you study this more carefully, the phrase, the gift of God, is used four times in the book of Acts when the new church was being formed to refer to the Holy Spirit of God. It's used in the Pentecostal sermon in chapter 2 of Acts, verse 38. It's used in Acts 8.20. It's used in Acts 10.25. It's used in Acts 11.17 to speak of the Holy Spirit. If you knew the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, that is the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you would have asked him, namely, you would have asked me, is what he's saying, and I would have given you living water. Jesus describes himself as the bread of life in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. 
But he never refers to himself as the living water. He never describes himself as that way. But we know that he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. And John goes on to say he was speaking of the Holy Spirit. So here we see two members of what we call the Trinity. Hopefully you know the word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's a contrived word to describe the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But here's the invitation in effect to her. I'm here, Jesus is saying, and I have living water that I can pass on to you. And what I do promise you is that if you will trust me, that which you ail from, and you know what she was sensing in her life? She was an empty woman. As we're going to see in just a moment, she had been married five times. Now, we don't know if she'd been widowed five times. That's a possibility. What we do know is the man with whom she was currently living was not her husband. So it's conceivable that she might have had some divorces along the way. And women had no rights. A man could just dismiss his wife for practically anything if he was of the Jewish persuasion and she was as well. But what we do know is this woman had been hurt over and over and over again. She had been rejected. She felt like she'd been let down by God. Undoubtedly, she had cried out to God for help, undoubtedly. But here we see this woman who is empty. She's tried to satisfy herself with relationship with a man. And certainly, marriage is God's institution. It's a good thing. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, He who finds a wife finds a good thing. So don't mishear what I'm saying. Marriage is God's best In our lives, there are some people who have the gift of celibacy. They're few and far between, but there are people. But this is God's will. But this woman had been abandoned by men, probably, at least a few. And she had been maybe abused by men. And she was empty. She needed to be filled with living water. Didn't even know it. And so she's confronted about her emptiness. Let's read a little further here. Verse 11. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. And we know that this well of Jacob was up to a hundred feet deep. That's a long way down to put a bucket in and pull it back up and get water. Where then do you get the living water? You don't even have a bucket. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? The very idea... She felt like he was being blasphemous at that point, probably, to compare himself with Jacob, one of the patriarchs, even of the Samaritans, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again. In other words, you are going to the wrong well, my lady. You are going there and you're never going to have your thirst quenched. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give shall never thirst. What a promise. Never. Ever. But the water that I shall give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, I love this. So, here's the picture. This woman is thirsty. She's empty and she's thirsty. 
And she really doesn't know how to slake her thirst. She's tried it various ways. And Jesus makes this remarkable statement. Anyone who drinks of this water which I have will himself or herself become a fountain of living water. Now, follow this just a moment. What happens is, when we come to know Christ, and the Spirit of God lives in us, the result of that is that out of our innermost being, as we've seen already, will flow rivers of living water. Jesus in us, by the Spirit, produces this artesian well that keeps flowing fresh water, clean water, water that sustains us. And we drink of that water, and then people around us also drink of that water. This is what Jesus wants for us. He wants us to have the joy that He has. Jesus' greatest joy is that people are changed forever because they drink of the living water that He offers. Their lives are filled with Him in the Holy Spirit. And then this woman is confronted in her sin. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. She still had not made the connection that he's not talking about physical water. He's talking about spiritual water. Verse 16, he said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And she went like this, because I really don't now. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you are a prophet. That's one of the funniest things I think I've ever read in the Bible. He had to be extraordinary to know these things about her. He was, in fact, a prophet. And in her mind, you need to know that the Samaritans had done away with everything except the writings of Moses, the first five books. The prophets they didn't deal with, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the wisdom literature they didn't deal with. And they were expecting, according to the book of Deuteronomy, that someone like Moses would come. Maybe he's the prophet, she said. Our fathers, in verse 20, she says, worshipped in this mountain. That would be Mount Gerizim. And you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men have to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. They don't even know God. Because what he's going to say, we worship that which we know. Speaking of descendants of Abraham, Jewish people, for salvation is from the Jews. Salvation was promised through the Messiah. Salvation came through the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. So, this is what we understand here about the Lord Jesus. And He's saying this to her. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshippers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. Do you know that God is seeking true worshipers. And it's important that we take a few minutes. It really begs for more attention, but to talk about this idea of worship, true worshipers. First of all, 
What is true worship? We gather from this passage of Scripture, just the word that's translated worship or worshipers, those words are words which come from a root word which was used, for instance, to describe the Magi when they found their way to Bethlehem and they worshipped the infant Christ. And the word for worship is a word which means to fall flat on your face and show adoration for another person. It would be accompanied many times in extra-biblical literature contemporary with the New Testament of kissing the hem of the garment of the one whom you fell flat on your face before. Or kissing the feet of that person. And you know, people's feet got dirty in those days because of the conditions of their roads that they traveled. So, here's what real worship is. It's submission to Jesus Christ. It's setting apart Christ as Lord in your heart. This is true worship. And it doesn't just happen in a place like this once a week. It's something which is to be characteristic of our daily lives as we follow the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why the quality of a worship service like this, certainly it has some relationship to what Becky does as she coordinates and leads music, worshipful music, and God helps us to worship that way. Hopefully the Lord works in my heart and helps me to prepare a message like this to share with you today. But look, the real key is for us to be people who are true worshipers, who worship all the time. And the place doesn't really make a difference. Now that might be argued, but what I'm saying is, we're worshiping in this nice air-conditioned building today. The group which just returned from Mombasa, Kenya, which is on the Indian Ocean, it's equatorial, it's at sea level, and believe me, I've been there three times. It is hot. You can't move without breaking out in a sweat there. They worshipped with the people there last Sunday, and they said it was the best worship experiences they've had. They didn't have any electronic instruments. They didn't... In some case, no case did they have air conditioning. Some of them had a circular fan that just stirred the hot air up worse. But it's not where you worship. It's not on Mount Gerizim where in 400 B.C. the Samaritans had built their own temple. It had been destroyed in 200 B.C. by a man named John Hyrcanus who was a true Jew. And he took it upon himself to lead his men who followed him and destroyed the temple, which lent to the bad blood between Samaritans and Jews, of course. So, what is worship? It's humbling ourselves before the Lord. Living in a position of submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, where do we worship? Well, you can worship in your home. You can worship in your car. You can worship here. You can worship wherever you go. And you ought to aspire to do that. To be in that kind of relationship with the Lord. Now, Here's another question we need to ask and find an answer. Whom do we worship? Well, we have it in the passage. You can look at it a little more carefully. But we worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's who we're to worship. And we're worshiping God. Well, that's a no-brainer. But we want to know that we're worshiping every member of the Godhead. And we can do that. When we open the Word of God and we read it, we have the opportunity to hear from God. I like 
the definition I heard from Howard Hendricks about what real worship is, a human response to a divine revelation. God speaks, I respond in worship. If we really hear from the Lord, we really get to know the Lord, if we drink of this living water, we cannot contain ourselves. We will be people who live in an atmosphere of worship. So, that's who we're to worship. Now, here's a big question. How do we worship? We worship in spirit and in truth. In my translation, spirit and truth are not capitalized. It's debated as to whether those words should be capitalized. I think they should be capitalized. Spirit, capital S, would refer to Holy Spirit. Truth, capital T, would refer to Jesus Christ. Doesn't Jesus say, I am the truth? He also says, your word is truth. Now, we don't need to be confused. Jesus is not the Bible. But we learn about Jesus through the Bible, correct? So here's the way we worship. We worship by means of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives us capability to worship. We ask, Holy Spirit, help me to worship. And believe me, He will do it. And it's nothing that mystical. You just ask Him, and you may not even know whether you're doing it or not. But if you're in the Word of God, you get direction and revelation from God as to what that looks like and what that's all about. So we, when we drink of this living water, we will be true worshipers. Jesus and Holy Spirit and God the Father will have found people who are true worshipers of them. Look at the last two verses of our text, 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. Even the Samaritans found evidence of that in what we call the writings of Moses, the law. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And she's getting a sense probably that Jesus is the Messiah. The prophet maybe. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The word he is not in the original language. It's added by the people who give us these translations to make sense. This is what he literally says. I who speak to you am. I am. Does that ring a bell? That's the way in which God introduces himself to Moses in the burning bush. He describes himself when asked by Moses, I am. Now, let's think a moment before we finish about the person of Jesus. Because he is the issue. Jesus, in the book of John, is seen repeatedly as being divine. He is God. Even in this last verse, which we just read, he says, I am. What's he saying? This is the first of several times he's going to say about himself, I am. And then he completes it usually. But here's, he only says, I am to her. She got the message. She understood what had happened with Moses and the Lord in the burning bush experience. Jesus is God. The other gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give a stronger emphasis on the humanity of Jesus. They talk about things which give us insight to the fact that he's God, too. But they really emphasize the humanity. Here we see, in this text, the emphasis of Jesus being human as well. He was tired and he was hungry. Does God get tired or hungry if he were just God? No. Is it important that Jesus became a man? Absolutely. We read 
and we read it so quickly, you might not have had time to ponder it. In Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, Jesus became a partaker of flesh and blood. In other words, he became human so that he could destroy the one who has the power of death and also could remove us from a position of fear about dying. That's what Christ did. And He had to become human in order to do that. He had to become one of us. The virgin birth is critically important in this whole scheme of things. He had to be born of a woman under the law, is what Paul says about it in Galatians. So He can be one of us. So that when the time came for sin to be paid, and we couldn't do it. Because, remember, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament... You couldn't offer a lamb for sacrifice which had any kind of defect or blemish. And Jesus is the Lamb of God who is without blemish, the perfect Lamb of God. And Jesus sacrificed Himself. The Father offered Jesus as a sacrifice so that we could have this living water and eternal life. Isn't this a great gospel that we have? And you think about Jesus. Jesus cares enough about you to confront you. With His love, be sure of that. As we were reading in Isaiah 55, did it strike you as we were reading that this invitation is something that you get? It's living water, but it doesn't cost you one red cent. You cannot buy it. It is a gift from the Lord to us. Wonderful, isn't it? This is what the Lord offers to us. And in that same section, the Scripture says that those who return to the Lord are people whom He pardons completely and whom He has great compassion for. This is our Lord. He is fully God. He is fully human. He is certainly deserving of our worship, as are the Father and the Spirit. And Christ is calling us to follow Him in His example in the way in which we relate to other people who may not yet have drunk of the living water which He offers, but would, perhaps, if we shared Him with them. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for this Truth from the Word of God. Thank you, Jesus, for the way you related to this woman who was an outcast in her own community, certainly unacceptable to the Jewish population. But you loved her, Lord, and you showed mercy to her. We thank you for the encounter that you had with her. And we pray now, Lord, as you look into our hearts, you'd search us and know us, See if there be any hurtful way in us and lead us in the way everlasting. If you're here this morning and you've never drunk of the living water which Jesus asks you to drink of, He makes that available to you. Would you consider turning your life over, remembering that it means to submit yourself to the Lord? It's not just getting the sip that saves, but it's living a life of submission to Christ. Put Him at the top of the ladder in your life, He is your Lord.
Father, I do pray for people who have said, yes, I want to receive Christ, that today would be the day that they would drink of this living water. For the first time, for those of us who have drunk of it before and have, for whatever reason, displaced you and put ourselves in first place, again, we ask your forgiveness, Lord. We ask that we would put you where you belong, right? Square down in the middle of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you.